Two years into the pandemic, yet another COVID-19 variant has emerged, and some people still advocate for government intervention and lockdowns in an effort to reach what they call COVID zero, while other people say that this virus is destined to become endemic. So at this point in the pandemic, should we be trying to eliminate COVID like it was once the goal, or is a different strategy needed? This is one of the questions, among others, that we will be discussing today. So welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Agustina vergara Sid. I'm a junior fellow at ARI, and with me is Dr. Amish Adalja, an infectious disease expert. Thank you, Dr. Adalja, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Adalja, since the last time we spoke, the biggest news that have emerged uh, about the pandemic is obviously the, the emergence of the Omicron uh, variant. So I've seen, we've seen a lot of information, especially in the last month or so about Omicron and its uh, severity and what this means for the trajectory of the fight of the, of the pandemic. Uh, and I've seen many experts claim that Omicron could possibly be the end of the pandemic uh, because it, it appears to be, according to some studies, a version of the virus that we can manage, like we do other coronaviruses and the flu. So could this actually be the point where uh, COVID becomes endemic and more manageable? COVID was always going to become more endemic and more manageable as more people got infected and as scientists and physicians provided us more tools to be able to prevent it and to treat it. I think that Omicron, because it's a, a variant that is able to escape some of the protection that our vaccines, that prior infection provide, sort of is the future of COVID that the virus is being pushed by evolutionary forces to be able to get around some of that immunity. There are four other coronaviruses that cause 25% of our common colds and they reinfect us routinely after a year. And to me, I think Omicron is a step down that path. It's still something though that is worrisome because there are still too many high-risk people who are not vaccinated that can crush a hospital. We, we know that people have died from Omicron. We know that people are getting hospitalized with Omicron. Even if it's lower, and it seems to definitely be lower than with Delta, it may be too much for a hospital that's already, already under stress with Delta, with unvaccinated Delta patients, now getting just, even if they get a, a dribble of Omicron patients, that still might be enough to put them over the edge. And remember that our hospitals are staffed with people and those people are, are, are becoming increasingly burned out, increasingly uh, leaving the field. So there's major staffing concerns that occur. So the fact is, even if Omicron is less deadly, and I think it is, it's still something that might be too much for certain hospitals because it's just deadly enough or just severe enough that a hospital that's already under stress might not be able to handle it. But pound for pound, if you're, if you're an individual, yes, an Omicron case is gonna be less severe too than a Delta. But from the healthcare system, if Omicron spreads rapidly through a high-risk population that's not vaccinated, that could actually be worse than Delta because more people get infected and more people get hospital, even if a small percentage of them get hospitalized, it still may be above the threshold. Yes, and uh, with the virus potentially becoming uh, endemic and, and uh, with all these uh, cases that we're seeing and you're saying that Omicron in some areas at least might have the capacity to crush hospitals because of its high transmissibility, what, I find interesting is that we're not seeing the same approach that we did in uh, uh, back like last year in 2021 and not to mention 2020 where we saw you know stay at home orders lockdowns and other restrictions like like we did back then 
even if now some of those restrictions have been reimposed or have been uh, extended like mask mandates and things of the such. Uh, and even though we're seeing this record high of COVID infections with Omicron, why do you think this uh, changed in, in the approach to the pandemic happened where we no longer are locking down and, and having restrictions like that? I think it's because many policymakers realized that this was now a different era, that 2021 is not the same thing as the early days of the pandemic. And when we, where we were seeing severe infections, they were in the unvaccinated. So I, I think what happened was the policymakers realized that this is an endemic virus. It's not going anywhere. This has been going on for two years. We need a sustainable approach. The hospitals are getting filled, not with vaccinated people, but with unvaccinated individuals. And I think they kind of made a calculation that this is going to be something that is a problem for the unvaccinated, but you can't keep holding the vaccinated back because, because of what the unvaccinated have chosen to do. And I think that's why we've seen a much, a much better policy. And I think it's also the fact that we have tools, we have vaccines, we have monoclonal antibodies, we have antivirals, we have rapid tests. All of that makes this an easier virus to deal with. And I think the population itself is becoming more acclimatized to the fact that COVID-19 is going to be something that they always have some level of risk for. And if you're vaccinated, it's not going to be something that is catastrophic for you. You may not even need to call your doctor. And Omicron, I think, accelerated that process because it causes breakthrough infections at will. And that's something that I think accelerated a process that was already happening in the thinking of our policymakers, saying that this is now something that's it's going to become ubiquitous and there's no way to really stop it. And I think we have to stop focusing on cases and look just at severity and hospital capacity, which was the original thing from the very beginning of the pandemic. That's come back. And I think the U.S. policy is much better than other countries when you, when you look at Omicron, when you see the lockdowns that are occurring uh, in Europe, even in Canada for example, there, there were some, you know, there was a lot of panic in the very first days of Omicron with a travel ban that was ineffectual and did not make any sense. But I think by and large, our, our policy has gotten better over the last couple of weeks when it comes to Omicron. And I think the president's speech a couple of weeks ago also articulated this change in focus and more, and, and really, I think a more realistic assessment of what it's like to have an endemic respiratory virus amongst us. And I think, uh, at least from what I've seen, uh, you know, part of the reason why uh, so many people are still scared and there are so many people that are still uh, acting as if we were in March 2020 is that, uh, of course, hospitalization, not hospitalization, sorry, COVID cases, positive cases have skyrocketed with Omicron. And those are being, those are that, those things are what people see in the media and they get really uh, desperate about it. So should we be focusing on positive cases alone at this point in the pandemic? No, I don't think we should have been focusing on positive cases for some time in this pandemic because what we're seeing is not, that not all cases are equal. Uh, not all cases translate into hospitalizations or deaths. And that's especially become true with so many people in the United States vaccinated with over 200 million people vaccinated that you're seeing a decoupling of cases from hospitalizations. We also have many people doing home tests now. Those home tests are largely not captured by public health surveillance. So whatever number you see, it's usually an underestimate as well. So they've got, gotten less value, there's less value in them. And with Omicron, as you said, there's going to be cases in everyone. Basically, I, I think most people are going to get Omicron or some version of Omicron in the coming weeks to months. So we really have to think about 
what's, what are we trying to prevent? What are our goals with this pandemic? And to me, the goal has always been to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death. So that's what we need to be focusing on. And as we see, as we get further along, we're going to see more decoupling. We're going to see a lower hospital hospitalization to case ratio, that that's going to, uh, uh, it's going to change the, the way that that's been from the very beginning of the pandemic. And we're going to have cases. There's always going to be a baseline number of cases and even hospitalizations and deaths. But we've got to start focusing on the, the severe specter of illness because our goal has been to make COVID something much more manageable. And, and that's going to mean those breakthrough infections are going to be less and less important. And mild infections are going to be treated more like other respiratory viruses we deal with year in and year out. I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier about the uh, policy, the public health policy regarding uh, COVID in the U.S. being uh, better than in other places like Canada, uh, you mentioned. Um, and it seems that those places are aiming at this or trying to aim at this strategy of, of zero COVID. Uh, they want to completely stop the spread, which it seems to be really impossible because of the very nature of the virus. And you recently wrote an op-ed about how there's actually no zero COVID and the fact that people need to assess the risk of getting infected as the virus becomes endemic. Uh, and you also mentioned that uh, there was a lost opportunity here to educate the public about risk assessments on the face of infectious disease. And uh, so you say also that harm reduction, not abstinence only should be the goal here in public health. So can you elaborate more on this approach? Sure. So first of all, I wouldn't characterize Canada as zero COVID. Canada is kind of a, a mixed case when it comes to this. New Zealand, Australia, China, those are the big zero COVID countries. But there is a lot of zero COVID thinking that's implicit in many people's policies. But what I argued for in this op-ed was something I've been talking about from the very beginning of trying to teach people how to risk calculate in a world in which COVID-19 is going to be ever present. And what we did early on in the, in, in the world and even in the, this country is basically tell people, you know, no activity is safe. We want the COVID risk to be as close to zero as possible. And that doesn't really work because we, we know from other infectious diseases like HIV or sexually transmitted infections or hepatitis C or even injection drug use that people are gonna take risks. And I think it's much better from a public health standpoint to give them guidance on how to make that a safer choice. Even though you might disagree that they shouldn't be doing that anyway. But I think it's much better to tell them, this is how you do it safer. This is how you decrease the risk by 30% or 50%. But we didn't really do that with COVID. We basically said, no, no activity is safe. Therefore, stay at home, wear masks, don't, you know, and isolate all the time from everybody and do all of that kind of blunt social distancing. And I think that caused a fracture in the country between some people who just said, I can't live like that, so I'm not going to even behave as if there's a pandemic going on, and other people who became very nervous and very scared and lost the ability to understand how to risk calculate to know that an outdoor activity, for example, is very safe compared to an indoor activity, or how wearing a mask can decrease your risk, or how vaccination changes your chance of getting severe illness. And that all got stunted because everybody was kind of on this abstinence-only approach. And in public health, we always have talked about harm reduction when, with HIV and other things, and it just basically got thrown out the window, and we lost a huge opportunity. So now you're seeing it's very hard for people to come back. You hear about major corporations still staying virtual uh, because they don't know what to do with even one case, or schools reflexively shutting down when they have cases. All of that kind of COVID abstinence only type of approach, where we what we need to have is something where we understand that cases are going to occur. We take measures to prevent them from becoming serious. 
and, and we do the, the best that we can, allowing people to pursue the values they want to pursue. And that's, that's a core part of harm reduction philosophy. And, and it's just not something that had been put in place with COVID. And it was really controversial to suggest it. And I was suggesting it even before vaccines were available. But now I think that we're starting to get there, but it's, it's gonna be difficult going because so many people have been primed to this other message. And then you have the other part of the country that doesn't care either one way or the other. And so they act as if there's not a pandemic. So it, it's gonna be a little bit difficult for us to get to the next phase of this. And yeah, like you said, uh, almost all activities in life uh, require a degree of risk or some kind of risk. And it seems that a lot of people are, we, we have lost that uh, capacity to risk assess when it, when it comes to COVID. And what I'm kind of hearing is that it's due to, you know, all these restrictions and what the public has been told by some experts and also politicians that they should be doing, which is the abstinence only approach. So I'm, what I'm hearing is that people lost the capacity to, to risk assess like they normally would with any other thing because of the kind of this kind of messaging. Is that right? Right, and, and they, so they don't know how to navigate a world in which the COVID-19 risk is present because they've been told that no risk is acceptable. So it's much harder for them to decide to go meet a friend or go to indoor dine or even to outdoor dine or go back to work because they haven't thought about how to, how to work around that. What, what, what they need to do to keep themselves safe or what level of risk is acceptable or how this risk compares to other risks they take every day that they step out the door. That wasn't something that was articulated. You're actually dissuaded from articulating that type of a framework early on because people didn't want, uh, or policymakers in public, some public health authorities didn't want people making those types of calculations. And maybe there was some time when people were very nervous about chains of transmission getting set off that landed on vulnerable people and, and then caused hospitalizations and deaths. But clearly now there, there's no, no room for that. And I think we're struggling. And I think you're seeing that in policymakers trying to struggle. To, that, that's why they're re really trying to make sure that restaurants stay open or that schools stay open. And I think that they're, it's a harder task for them because this isn't something that they had embraced earlier on. They should have done that. That should have been the policy from the very beginning. But now they're issuing it, and that's why you see a lot of pushback uh, against some of the, the isolation guidance from the CDC or, or any or those types of recommendations, because people are saying that that's more harm reduction, that's more uh, that's very different than what we said before. So they're kind of shocked by it, and I think that's predictable that people are shocked by it. But it's what we should have been been articulating from the very beginning, and that opportunity was lost. But I still think that you know that's going to be the actual true path forward. It's just going to take some time for some people to become fully on board with it. So how can we help people kind of relearn to assess risk with, with COVID in particular? Uh, do we need to have uh, politicians that say and public uh, figures actually keep pushing this other uh, harm reduction approach? And so because people have been hearing for two years, it's abstinence only approach and now all of a sudden, like you said, uh, it's, it's different. So people are, I think, somewhat understandably confused. So how do we uh, teach people again how to assess the risk in the face of COVID? I think we have to be very clear with them that there's not going to be a time when the world looks like 2019, that COVID-19 is always going to be there. It's not going to magically go back into bats. So they've got to figure out if they want to socially interact with people, if they want to get back to the activities that they've put on hold, they're going to have to learn how to risk calculate. And I think we really have to tell people that the value of the vaccine 
primarily is in removing the ability of the virus to cause serious illness in the person that's been vaccinated. And that should be what people should, should take with them, that they should feel reassured. Yes, I'm going to go out there and do things. Yes, I'm probably going to get COVID-19 at some point, but it's going to be mild because I'm vaccinated. That's the best way to get people to risk calculate. And then I think each person is going to have their own risk tolerance. Obviously, if you're an immunosuppressed person who's had a, an organ transplant and, and has lots of medical problems, you're still going to be careful because COVID-19 is a new threat out there. So you, that person might be advised to wear a mask when they're around other people, to make sure they're only around vaccinated people, to do more activities outdoors. There are going to be people like that. But in general, I think we have to just show people that Yes, this is, it's not the end of the world if you get a COVID-19 infection, if you're vaccinated, because it's not going to be something that leads you to, to uh, require hospitalization. And we're getting more and more tools to be able to do that with antivirals and monoclonal antibodies. But, but we have to just be frank with people that there is no, as I've said so many times, there is no COVID zero. You can get the risk low, you can get it manageable, but it's still a, a risk. And our goal has always been just to make it like other respiratory viruses. And I think that sometimes helps when you tell people, this is your risk from influenza when you're vaccinated. This is your risk from, from COVID-19 when you're vaccinated. And they become comparable in vaccinated individuals. And that helps people at least risk stratify and understand where it fits and things that they're accustomed to. But they weren't able to do that for so long because COVID was kind of in its own category. But it's going to take some time. And I don't think everybody is going to be on board with it right away. You're going to find some of your friends and family members who are still acting as if it's the very beginning of the pandemic. But eventually we will get there. That's it. but it's going to be a long process. And I think it's because of the way that this was handled in the early days. Yes, and I want to we'll talk later about the tools that we have to do a proper risk assessment, which has which are among other things vaccines and therapeutics. But let me ask you kind of a devil's advocate question, Dr. Adalja. So you say there's no eliminating COVID. Uh, it's an endemic virus, it's going to be here with us. Uh, and it's partly due to its capacity to spread so easily and the fact that it's a respiratory virus. Um, however, in the US, we have been able to eliminate an even more transmissible virus, which is the, the virus that causes measles. So why is it that we can't do the same with COVID? So, so a couple of things with, so measles is a, a very transmissible respiratory virus, probably the most transmissible virus that's known to, to mankind. And it has, been, it has been eliminated from the United States. And I think that's, there's a couple of reasons for that. So measles, measles does have a vaccine that provides a lot more sterilizing immunity. So, so vaccines kind of are not on and off switches. They provide a spectrum of protection, protection against asymptomatic infection, mild infection, moderate, severe hospitalization and death. And the measles vaccination is different in that it is a vaccine that provides almost sterilizing immunity, meaning protection against any type of infection. Whereas the first generation COVID vaccines that we see were kind of closer to the measles vaccine when it came to the original version and the alpha variant, but with the Delta variant and Omicron and the beta variant, it's unlikely that, that they can do that. So their main purpose is preventing severe illness, hospitalization and death. And another thing to remember about measles and, and when we use the words eliminate and eradicate in, in infectious disease or epidemiology, they mean something a little bit different than when the general public uses it. Eliminate means no domestic transmission. Um, so measles has been eliminated from, from North America, but it's not something that can ever be, it's, it, it's also something that, but it's not eradicated. We still have 15,000 something uh, deaths per year from measles worldwide, but measles doesn't have an animal host. 
So that's something that actually can be eradicated with a really good vaccine. So measles is in a different category than something like SARS-CoV-2, which is an efficiently spreading respiratory virus that comes from an animal that we have vaccines that provide strong protection against serious disease, but not sterilizing immunity. So there's a, a difference there between the two. But from the very start, when you're dealing with a virus with an animal host, it's not, it's not something that can be gone from the planet the way smallpox could be, the way polio is slated to be, the way that measles could be if, if we vaccinated enough people. But there's just differences. Not every vaccine is the same. And I think that's what people falter on. They don't understand what the purposes of the vaccines were. And the primary purpose with the COVID vaccine was to, to, to prevent the serious illness, hospitalization and death that was occurring. And that's what those first generation vaccines do off the chart. Maybe we get a better vaccine and we get better control of transmission down the line, but that's not gonna be the, the, the goal at this, at, at this phase of the pandemic. So let's turn to, uh, to vaccines then, Dr. Adalja, which are one of the tools that people have to uh, assess the risk of them going back to some version of normalcy uh, while living with the COVID-19 virus. So how effective are vaccines currently available in the US against these variants specifically? So it all depends upon what the goal of the vaccine is. So we have, as I just said, the, the most important goal is prevention of serious illness, hospitalization and death. In, in a healthy person, those vaccines are performing above 90% in terms of protection against severe disease, hospitalization and death. In people that are above the age of 65, in people with high-risk conditions, that falls. That's why those people have been targeted. They were initially the first people targeted for booster vaccinations to, to bring up that number. But in general, it's above 90% against the, the, the metric that matters. When it comes to infection, it depends upon the variant and it depends upon the time since your vaccination. So with the original version and, and the alpha variant, we saw pretty high levels. 70, 80, even 60%, six, six months or so out. I'm kind of giving you general numbers. So I may be off a little bit um, on the numbers. But with the Delta variant and definitely with the Omicron, the protection against symptomatic disease falters significantly. And with Omicron, even with a booster after about 10, 10 weeks or so, you see that protection falter. But I, I don't think that those are the proper metrics to look at with these vaccines because as I've said from the beginning, it's about prevention of serious disease. It was great when we saw 90% protection against any infection in the Moderna and Pfizer trials, but that, that was against a different version of the virus. And that was at a time when there wasn't much to do because everybody was at home because many things weren't open. So you weren't actually challenging that vaccine so much. It was much harder to find, find the virus when everybody was staying at home. But I would think that it, when you look at the metrics of how many lives have been saved in the United States from these vaccines, it's, it's already over 1 million. It, it's, it's really tremendous how much they've been able to change the way we deal with COVID-19. I worked in the hospital yesterday. I did not admit any vaccinated COVID-19 patients. I admitted unvaccinated COVID-19 patients. When you walk through the hospital, it is unvaccinated patients that are there by and large. And I think that really is a testament to how the, the epidemiology of this virus has completely changed by who's been vaccinated and who hasn't. And I think it's important uh, to do what you're doing, Dr. Dalja, to clarify what the goal of the vaccine really is. It's not, like you have said before, you have used this expression, it's not a bug zapper, which is gonna completely eliminate any possibility of getting infected, but the goal is to have uh, less severe, to, to prevent severe disease and hospitalizations and obviously death. But um, do you think that, uh, like we have seen uh, this bad communication about uh, the, potential of uh, COVID to become endemic, 
and uh, this we have seen this abstinence only approach do you think that people are also i see a lot of people that are kind of like quote disappointed in the vaccines because they have gone a so-called breakthrough infection because the media uh, and and some experts Toted, toted the vaccine as something that would be like a magical cure, a panacea that would completely end the pandemic and people who are vaccinated would never be able to get uh, uh, an, an infection. I definitely think that there was uh, an element of over, over promising or just misleading uh, the way that we thought about these vaccines. In the early days, the FDA was poised to approve something that had just a 50% efficacy at preventing clinical disease. That's much, much lower. And then we saw the results from Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J that well exceeded that 50% mark, and everybody was ecstatic because they were performing better than expected. However, I think that when people looked at the, that data, or, or actually people in the field looked at it, we said, okay, yes, but that's the, the virus may mutate away. This is pretty short-term data. We know that immunity is going to wane. And we know that those people in the clinical trial that, that they, they were living at a time when there wasn't much for them to do. Everybody was scared and staying at home. There, were, there weren't restaurants to go to. There weren't football games to go to. Once you actually challenge the, vi challenge the, the vaccine with a lot more exposure, that number might fall. And I think we should have been much more clear about that, that yes, we're really excited about this 90%. We're really, um, this, is, this is much better than we expected. But we had to keep. We should keep the eye on our on the ball. That, that the, what we're trying to do here is prevent serious illness. So we shouldn't think of them as as something that's going to give you this magic force field bug zapper that prevents you from getting infected with anything. And, and not to judge the vaccines based on that met metric, but on the metric of severe disease, because it ends up underselling the vaccine, and then you, it ends up creating vaccine hesitancy because they say, look, all these people are getting breakthrough infections. And I think even the word breakthrough is probably a, a bad way to put it because it's as if the vaccine failed when it wasn't really designed to prevent all infections. So it's not the vaccine's fault. It's not some flaw in the vaccine that's allowing these breakthrough infections. It's, like, it's just that these first generation vaccines were much more about preventing, preventing severe disease. So, so I do think we need to go back at the end of this pandemic and do a lot more work on the public health messaging that went out because I think it did create a lot of, uh, of the problems that we face now, to, that we still face today. And regarding one specific vaccine, which is the Johnson & Johnson's, uh, the CDC recently recommended that people get the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine over the Johnson & Johnson. So, um, however, I've, I've seen a uh, pre-publication study recently uh, that says that the uh, Johnson & Johnson booster could be as much as 85% effective against Omicron hospitalizations in particular. So can you say more about this CDC recommendation, why this happened and uh, why would it happen in, in light of, uh, you know, a good percentage of protection against Omicron? So the CDC's recommendation to kind of downgrade Johnson & Johnson and prefer or direct people towards the mRNA wasn't based on efficacy. It was more based on a very rare side effect where you have a blood disorder that can lead to clots. That's basically why they did that, because what they saw is in females of childbearing age, there was a higher rate of that than expected. And because the mRNA vaccines don't have that side effect, they basically gave a preferential recommendation. And it was a controversial preferential recommendation. I think because the risk the risk benefit ratio still favors J&J &J, and the J&J &J vaccine does work differently. And it is, it is very robust uh, and a good vaccine that I've recommended to many people, especially since it's a single dose vaccine um, that makes it, it doesn't have crazy storage requirements. So it is a really good vaccine, but it was mostly based on the fact that 
they they were un uncomfortable with the risk profile versus the the mRNA vaccines. But I think it, it's good to have more than one vaccines because each of them kind of has their own. I, I recommend certain vaccines to certain people based on their individual characteristics. I think that's the way we want to go with this. And I think the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been maligned for a long time. And I have no conflict of interest with Johnson & Johnson. I don't have, uh, I, I don't work on that vaccine or, or have Johnson & Johnson stock. But it, I think it's been something that's always had problems with the public perception and the way the government has handled it. And I think that that recommendation is probably going to dissuade people from getting vaccinated. And it probably could have been done a little differently. They could have said women of childbearing age, we, we recommend the mRNA vaccines preferentially, but for everybody else, the J&J &J vaccine remains uh, an equal option. Another thing uh, that we're, that I've been seeing lately is that a lot of experts advocate for booster shots for all adults, uh, experts and non-experts, but for, for instance, the, the president himself has been advocating for uh, booster shots for all adults. And I saw this morning something about booster shots being approved for teenagers as well. And the claim is that a third dose helps fight Omicron specifically much better. Um, so what is your position on these booster shots? I'm for much more targeted approaches to boosters. I think that booster shots make sense for people that are above the age of 65, people with high risk conditions, and people who got the J&J just because it gets them up to a higher level of protection against symptomatic disease. Again, this goes back to the goals of the vaccine. To me, the goal is to prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And we're just not seeing erosion of that protection in the healthy population. So I don't think that boosters for the general healthy population make sense, especially since the benefit is transient, meaning that over time, that, that protection against symptomatic illness is going to wear off. And you hear now of Israel talking about fourth doses. So to me, boosting to prevent mild illness for a transient period of time with these first generation vaccines doesn't make sense to me. I think for those high risk groups, yes, they should get boosted. But for everyone else, I don't think it makes much sense to do that. And again, it goes back to my goals with this pandemic. And just like I said yesterday, I didn't see any vaccinated people getting hospitalized. I didn't see any vaccinated, unboosted people getting hospitalized. When I take care of patients that are getting hospitalized for COVID, it's not because they lack a booster vaccine. It's because they lack first and second doses of the vaccine. So I think that's where the focus should be. Maybe there will be an Omicron specific variant uh, vaccine or a booster. That might make a lot more sense to me. But if you're not in the high risk group, I, I don't see a strong uh, need for it. However, many organizations, including universities, are now requiring it. So it's going to become very difficult, but it's, it's not going to really be the end of the pandemic. The end of the pandemic is going to be marked by first and second doses, not third doses. And you were just uh, talking about the people that you've seen hospitalized uh, in, in your practice. So one other thing that has emerged in the last couple of weeks that I've seen is experts trying to differentiate between people that are hospitalized with COVID versus people that are hospitalized for COVID. And they're calling for a distinction between these two scenarios and when reporting you know, COVID hospitalizations. So can you explain this difference, this difference and whether you agree that we should actually make this distinction when reporting um, hospitalizations? So the distinction has to do with the fact that hospitals are routinely testing everyone for COVID because they don't want to put a patient maybe in a, with a roommate that has COVID, one doesn't, one doesn't, one does, and you spread COVID in the hospital. So they're really aggressive with making sure that they uncover every COVID-19 case for infection control purposes. 
So you will find in certain, certain instances that there are people getting hospitalized for something else. So maybe they get admitted for a psychiatric reason and they get COVID tested and that comes back positive. So that person isn't being hospitalized because of COVID. They're being hospitalized with, with COVID. They just have it, it's incidentally found. This happens to be much more common in pediatric populations as well, that, that maybe a child breaks their ankle, they're coming in for surgery, they get tested pre-op and they, they come back positive. This is becoming, this wasn't a really a major issue until Omicron because Omicron is infecting everyone and it is causing a lot of mild illness. So I do think that there is value in distinguishing that when, when we're looking at hospitalization numbers now, especially pediatric hospitalization numbers to understand what's actually going on. It wasn't the case with alpha and delta in the original version of the virus that this was a major issue, but it will become one with Omicron. And I think it, it is important to distinguish those two, those two metrics because testing has become very routine in hospitals and Omicron is basically everywhere. So we have to, when we're looking at hospital capacity and thinking about what's going on in the hospitals, it's much more important to look and see who's in the hospital because of COVID-19, not with COVID-19, even though the hospital may treat them similarly because they still have to wear the appropriate personal protective equipment when they're taking care of someone, even if they're there with a broken ankle in COVID. But, but it is something that is becoming increasingly important with Omicron. You just mentioned uh, children hospitalizations. Um, and there have been reports in the last few weeks about children hospitalizations increasing with Omicron. Is this due to any uh, uh, property of the virus being able to affect kids in a way that previous variants did not? Or is this mostly just what you were saying, people te incidentally testing for COVID, like the kids going to the emergency room or to the hospital for something else and testing positive, but being hospitalized for different reasons? It's a little bit of both, but there are people that are get testing positive. There are children testing positive when they're there for other reasons. And we've seen multiple reports of that already from children's hospitals that are, that are saying a lot of their patients are not there or over half of them are not there for COVID related purposes. But there are some kids that are hospitalized with COVID. Remember, there are many kids with asthma and other medical conditions that put them at higher risk. And also kids are the lowest vaccinated rate group in this country. So if you're less than 18, you're, you're less likely to be vaccinated. And as you get to lower age groups, um, below eight, below six, below 15, below 12, below five, and obviously below five because they're not eligible to be vaccinated. There's a lot of unvaccinated individuals out there. And remember the, the virus is going to hospitalize unvaccinated high-risk people. And there, there happen to be those in the pediatric population as well. The absolute numbers are small, but there has been an increase. As cases increase, you're going to see kids get infected, especially if they're not vaccinated. And some of those kids with high-risk conditions, if they're not vaccinated, are going to get hospitalized. But I do think it's a more manageable infection for children, but there are some hospitals that have had to increase their capacity in order to take care of some of these kids. But the best way to get those children, those children safe is for them to get vaccinated and to have more people vaccinated. Uh, so picking up on what you just said, usually the previous versions of the virus, I guess, uh, affected, uh, so far we've seen that it has affected kids uh, a little bit less unless they are, uh, have a, condition that makes them more vulnerable to severe disease. Um, so now that children as young as five years old are eligible to receive a COVID vaccine, is there any risk to vaccinating them? And is, if, if there is any risk, is it worth the risk? And is it worth vaccinating these kids if they don't have uh, any condition that could make them more vulnerable to hospitalization or severe disease? I've seen no evidence that this vaccine is is unsafe or 
is a hazard to children as, as little as five years of age. I think it's still uh, the risk benefit ratio still favors the vaccine. The benefit they get is obviously less because they're at much lower risk of severe disease. But I think it's a safe and effective vaccine in that group. And if it helps you to prevent your child from being having their life disrupted or having one, one, less, one less respiratory illness or having to quarantine at school or, or whatever it might be, I think it's worth getting because it's a safe and effective vaccine. Is it, is it going to change the trajectory of the pandemic to have children vaccinated? No. Um, but I think it's something that benefits those individual individual children's life when they're when talking about a safe and effective vaccine. So no, I don't think there's much controversy to me, for, for me to recommend that children be vaccinated uh, against this. I think we vaccinate children against many diseases that are not very severe in them. For example, chickenpox or rotavirus. Uh, and I think this is this falls in that same category. And uh, Dr. Adalja, what do you think is the future of COVID vaccines? Uh, you, when, when we last spoke, you mentioned that uh, at some point there might be a, a we, we might see COVID vaccines in the form of nasal sprays, which uh, could, could have a lot of benefits, including but not limited to people that, uh, you know, are, don't really like needles and they have some sort of phobia and they are hesitant to get vaccinated because of that reason. And I read recently that, uh, Russia is developing a version of their Sputnik V vaccine, which is a nasal spray. Uh, has there been any uh, advancements on the vaccines, whether it's a universal uh, COVID, uh, coronavirus vaccine or the, a new technology? What, what are the updates there? There, there has been progress. For example, a universal coronavirus vaccine uh, was developed by Walter Reed and it did well in um, the, the Walter Reed Medical Center for the military. It, it did well in the in phase one clinical trials and is now moving into phase two. So this is something that is promising that may take care of all the variants of COVID-19 and maybe some of the other coronaviruses as well, like SARS and MERS and some of the community uh, acquired coronaviruses that cause colds. So that's exciting. There, there has been progress on, on nasal flu, nasal vaccines. They, they're kind of chugging along, nothing specific that I can, um, that I can point to on, on nasal vaccines, but they are being investigated. There's a recombinant vaccine made by Novavax, which got cleared in the European Union. Uh, that uses uh, a cell line to basically produce the spike protein, uh, very similar to some of the flu vaccines that we use. That may be helpful for some people who don't want to or, or are hesitant to get mRNA or, or the J&J &J vaccine. So, so there's that. There's that. Uh, people are trying to make hybrid vaccines between flu and COVID. Uh, I think there's a lot of innovation it's going to be, it's hard to predict exactly where it's going to go, but I do think the second generation vaccines are going to be significantly better. And you'll probably see this become more of a childhood immunization that people get routinely along with MMR and everything else as we get further along into the, into the pandemic and, and as we get out of the pandemic into the endemic phase. But I think there's a lot of room for innovation here to get these vaccines to be better, easier to give, less onerous storage requirements. And a nasal vaccine, just one last point about it is, the benefit of that is not just needle phobia, it's that that's how the virus infects you. And if you can have a nasal vaccine, you will get a lot of antibody response in your nose, which may be much better at having like a measles-like uh, ability to the vaccine approach. And shifting now, uh, a little bit towards uh, a different type of immunity, natural immunity. Um, I was recently uh, in Germany for the holidays and uh, one thing really caught my attention. And well, of course in Germany, it's one of those countries where they have still some very strict restrictions. 
For instance, the government mandates that uh, businesses only allow fully vaccinated people in, the, in their businesses or people who can prove they have recovered from COVID that, so, that they have uh, natural immunity. So this says to me that they take natural immunity very seriously and they deem it protective enough to prevent infection or, or spread or at least severe spread. And as far as I know, this is an approach that we still haven't seen here in the US. Uh, natural immunity is not regarded as sufficiently protective or, or a substitute for vaccination for doing many activities where vaccination is required. So why is this, Dr. Adalja, and what can you tell us about natural immunity? So natural immunity is significant. It does definitely protect you against serious illness for some period of time. And it also prevents you from reinfection from some period of time. What the issue is, is that it's a little bit unpredictable. You don't know who has it and who doesn't and how durable it is. And the other issue is, is that it's, it's not as, it's, it's not as um, strong when it comes to certain variants. So for example, the beta variant, which was once, once called the South African variant a while ago, that was something to get natural immunity. There's always a sense of natural immunity. Yes, it, it is something that's important, but it's something that not, is not going to hold up against every variant. I had been someone who advocated that if in people who've got prior infection, one dose of the vaccine is sufficient because it basically puts them off the chart in terms of protection against reinfection and protection against severe disease. And I think that's probably the policy that we should have used in the United States. I think Israel does one dose in those individuals. And early on, when, when we um, started our vaccine program and the vaccines were scarce, we said people with natural immunity should wait and let other people go first. So there was some acknowledgement of that. And even if you look at the CDC quarantine care, uh, guidelines. If you've been infected within 90 days, you don't need to quarantine if you've been re-exposed. So they do recognize some aspects of natural immunity, but they do treat it differently than the vaccine. And I think that's a mistake because it, it's, it's caused a lot of vaccine hesitancy. And I think it would have been easy just to say, get one dose of the vaccine, um, just like Israel did. And that would have probably put, uh, take the, taken the heat down a little bit on, on this. But now it's become very political and, and, it's, and it's actually silly because it's a medical question, but You've got, you can predict someone's politics based on how they stand on natural immunity. So, you know, my final answer on it is that I think it, it is significant, it is substantial, but I would, I would advise people with natural immunity to top off that immunity with at least one dose of a vaccine. The J&J &J vaccine might be the one to do because it's a one and done and you get, uh, and you get the full vaccination status. Some of that is gonna change with Omicron because Omicron walks right through natural immunity. Uh, just so, so this was all sort of pre-Omicron. Omicron is probably going to change a lot of people's ideas about this natural immunity because it seems that natural immunity uh, does not have much uh, impact on Omicron infection and, and people with natural immunity have died from, from uh, Omicron as well. So I, I think if you're now at the point where you've been holding your natural immunity, I think Omicron should push you, especially if you're high risk, to get at least one dose of a vaccine. Let's turn now, Dr. Dalja, to another tool that uh, helps people uh, assess the risk uh, when, when they decide to uh, live their lives again uh, in, and, and, and live with the virus, which is, you know, the, the therapeutics that we have now available that we did like a short time ago. So the biggest news from the last uh, few weeks is the approval of uh, the Pfizer antiviral drug Paxlovid. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this therapeutic and, and how effective, effective it is at preventing hospitalizations and deaths? So Paxlovid is a really exciting drug. It's, it's a drug, it's called a protease inhibitor. So it interferes with a part of the viral life cycle where the, 
the virus is having the, its proteins kind of processed and cut up and it blocks that step. And it's, a, it's an oral medication uh, that you take for several days. And from the clinical trials, it is extremely effective, 90% effective basically at preventing hospitalization and death. So this is something that is an oral pill that you take that can prevent you from dying from COVID. So it is a game changer. The thing about it is that you need to get it pretty quickly. So we'd like to ideally get it within the first three days or so of illness. So that means that you've got to get tested. So we've got to have tests to be able to link that to a prescription for PAX. And it's something that it's in scarce quantities right now. Pfizer is increasing their production, but it's not, not enough right now. I haven't prescribed it yet. It's very hard to find uh, because there's just so few doses of it. But it will be something once we get enough supply that I think will be uh, another sign that we're getting much better at dealing with COVID-19 and it should be a, a sign of hope. It shouldn't be considered a substitute for a vaccine because it's still better to prevent infection than to actually treat it. But it is going to be something that will be really useful at keeping people out of the hospital. It does have some drug-drug interaction. So it's something that you probably should, you should talk to your doctor, especially if you're on other medications because it does interact with many drugs. So it's not, um, it's not something you can just pop like Tylenol. You still have to think about it um, in terms of what other medications you're on. But I think it is really, really uh, exciting. And I wish we had a lot more of it uh, in the United States to, to use with our patients. And is the new uh, Merck uh, antiviral just as effective, or I, I read that it's a little bit less effective than, than uh, Pfizer's? Not just a little bit less effective, a lot less effective. Uh, so the Merck pill is probably maybe uh, only maybe about 30% uh, protection against hospitalization, and the absolute, the absolute reduction is very small in the clinical trials. So it, we were very excited about Merck, uh, but it didn't necessarily pan out the way that Paxlovid did. Uh, it is approved and it is something that you would use probably in, in a circumstance where you couldn't get somebody Paxlovid, you couldn't get somebody monoclonal antibodies, can't necessarily use it in pregnant women because it might have a mutagenic potential. So it really was, a, it's, a, it's a good to have that tool there when we need it, but it's not going to be the workhorse uh, the, the way Paxlovid would be. It's a little bit disappointing, um, but, but I think it's, uh, it, it's still uh, a good thing to have in our toolbox when we need it. And now shifting, uh, I want to pick up on what you said, for instance, that Paxlovid is uh, it's a really good tool that we, we can use. However, we need to give it to people within the first few days of infection. And right now, it's really hard to get a test. So there are really long lines to, get, to go get tested for a PCR test. And I personally know people that have gotten tested, but have gotten the results like 10 days later, which renders them absolutely useless. So uh, on, and on the other hand, we're seeing a, a shortage of at-home um, COVID tests. So we're in a, I guess, tricky situation when it comes to COVID testing. So with this shortage of at-home COVID tests and these uh, long lines for PCRs, what, what is the solution to this? So are, are, can we somehow get some more COVID at-home tests available? What explains this shortage that we're seeing? It's inexplicable that we have this shortage, but it has to do with the fact that this was a market that's always kind of been controlled by government from the very beginning, and we've always been constrained by the FDA's uh, movement on, on home tests and the way that tests were prioritized in the not prioritized in the last administration and haven't been prioritized in this administration. Early in the Earlier on, we had Abbott, which is one of the main makers, destroy inventory and lay people off because a lot of people assume more people were going to be vaccinated and we would be out of this. But we wouldn't necessarily need these tests as much because 
vaccines would have solved everything. But the fact is, only 62% of the country is fully vaccinated. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in. And this was predictable because it wasn't just at Christmas that we noticed this test issue. Just a couple months in October and, and in, in November, it clearly was hard to find tests. This was going to be an issue. So this was another failure of government to really anticipate it. And since government is the one basically controlling the testing market, giving these emergency use authorizations, it it's really falls on their uh, on their shoulders for why this happened. And I think it's inexcusable um, that, that this happened. It's going to get better eventually, uh, but most likely in the spring when we start to see much more plentiful tests. Uh, I, I'd like to see more regulatory reform as well to get these tests regulated less like medical diagnostic tests and more like public health tests so that they can go through much faster than they are and that they'll become much cheaper because there won't, there'll be less regulatory compliance costs. But that's gonna be very hard at the, at the FDA. There are some people that have been pushing for that for some time, but there's not been any movement. But, but it, is, it is going to be critical to use drugs like Paxlovid that we have the ability to test people very quickly. And if people wanna go back to work, if people wanna to start to navigate the world, the easier that they can test themselves to know their status, to say, I'm safe to be around, I'm not safe to be around, the better that's going to be for the economy as a whole. So this is a really critical thing that needs to be fixed. And we have to hold, hold the administration responsible for, for what's happened here, because uh, President Biden campaigned on being better at testing, and he, it has gotten better than it was, and at least he understands the value of it. But this, the idea that this was not predictable, that we were going to have this shortage, that's completely false. We've been warning them. Uh, for, for months that they needed to fix this testing problem. And now they're going to have you know, insurance companies reimburse testing. That's also not going to fix the problem because people are still not going to get tested if they have to fill out forms to get reimbursed for those tests. Instead of actually addressing the root cause, which is why did the test cost so much more here? And, and thinking about the regulatory costs that are incorporated, that's not something that, that, that they want to address, but I think they have to uh, address it if we're going to move forward in the pandemic. They, need, they needed to get out of the way early on with the test makers. They constrained them from developing. So we, we've always been behind the eight ball when it comes to tests. And now it's really coming back to, to haunt us. And I've always said that testing has been the original sin of this pandemic. It's what set us off in the wrong way from the very first days, and it continues to do so today. And Dr. Dalja, uh, the FDA now says too that at-home antigen tests are, have reduced sensitivity to Omicron. Uh, and I think this is going to dissuade people from even trying to probably get a test uh, if they can actually find it. So is this the case that these antigen tests are really not that effective against Omicron? No, it's, it's a misunderstanding. No test is going to be highly effective on the first days of symptoms, especially in a vaccinated individual where the symptoms might be from the immune system. So with, with a rapid antigen test, you've got to think, what are you trying to answer? What's the question you want to know the answer to when you're getting tested? So if your question is, am I safe to be around people? Antigen tests work really well. You have no symptoms. You're just screening yourself to say, do I have enough virus in my nose or in my mouth to infect other people? Antigen tests do really well at that. But if you're sick and you have symptoms and an antigen test is negative, you should still isolate. You should still think about getting now a formal test or getting tested for flu or getting tested for strep throat or something else. So a, a positive test is helpful if you've got symptoms, but a negative test doesn't clear you from COVID. But for asymptomatic contagiousness testing, the antigen tests work really well. I think that's where their strong value, that's where the value is the strongest. And now Dr. Adaja, uh, shifting to uh, one controversial topic that has um, that arised recently. 
is the new CDC guidelines about isolation that state that infected individuals should isolate for five days down from 10 days, that was the case before, if they are asymptomatic, asymptomatic or if their symptoms are resolving. And when they go out of isolation, they have to wear a well-fitting mask, a good mask for five days when around others to minimize the risk of uh, infecting, if infecting them when they encounter them. So, uh, and they also shortened the quarantine period for those exposed to the virus. So there's a lot of controversy around this change in recommendations. Do you think this change makes sense and is actually supported by science? I do think the change makes sense and is supported by science. And this goes back to what I said earlier, that when we're going from abstinence only to something like harm reduction, this is shocking to many people. But we've known from the very beginning that the one size fits all 10 day isolation period didn't really reflect when people were contagious. And that from contact, from case contact studies and contact tracing, we knew that most transmission occurred in the first five days of illness. So there was always a push to try and make that a much more manageable isolation period, because even if you had a mild illness, if you had to be isolated for 10 days, that's not a mild disruption to your life. It's a major disruption to your life. Many people were not even getting tested because they were so afraid of getting a 10 day isolation period. They were being dissuaded from testing or people just didn't didn't complete, the, didn't complete their isolation period. So the CDC looked at all that data and said, how can we make this more scientifically based and right size? So they said five days and people pushed back because it didn't include a testing requirement because yes, the bulk of transmission occurs within five days, but maybe maybe 30% or, or less, depending upon how far out you go, occurs after day, day five. And that's where they got the criticism. To me, I think the best way to do this would have been gauge it with rapid antigen tests, when you're negative, go about your life. However, we have a scarcity, and I think they didn't want to do something that wasn't going to be um, fully implementable. Although now they've modified it and said, if you have a test, test yourself on day five. But if you're positive, then, then isolate for the full 10 days, which is going to, again, disincentivize people to be tested. But you're saying, if you want to be tested. So it's really muddled what's going on here. But the, the bottom line is, is that 10-day period was too long and wasn't supported by science. I think what we want to do is precision guide isolation periods with rapid tests if there are enough rapid tests available. That's how I would have made the recommendation. And I think we'll get there eventually. Uh, but the CDC, again, again, I think failed in their messaging here because it's now confusing. And they got a lot of backlash from people uh, who were surprised by this. Another example of how public health communication is something we really need to work on post-pandemic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Adalja. I know your time is very valuable and you're very busy, so I appreciate you being with us today. And for everyone uh, that would like to continue this conversation, we're going to have a clubhouse tomorrow, January 6th, with Dr. Adalja at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, where we will keep discussing uh, this topic, especially uh, the topic of risk assessment and the abstinence approach that does not work. Thank you everyone for your super chat donations. And uh, I'd like to highlight uh, uh, Dr. Dalja's recent op-ed on the Hill called Abstinence Only Approach to COVID Failed in 2021, Missed Opportunity for Teaching Harm Reduction. I strongly recommend you check out Dr. Dalja's op-ed. And for next week, we have another episode and we're gonna be talking about Ayn Rand's repudiation of racism. Uh, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And don't forget to follow us on socials, uh, on YouTube. 
click uh, subscribe, like our video, turn on notifications so you, so you know when we upload new content. Same with Facebook, please like, share. And uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can email us at newideal at ironrand.org. Thank you, Dr. Adalja again, and thanks everyone for tuning in. See you next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.